0: Thank you. I trust that you're all doing well today and that you're expectant as I share with you this message on the eight judgments. Last week, we were looking at eternal judgment. So I was introducing you to various concepts and the nature of eternal judgment in scripture. And I highlighted the importance of it and how it affects our lives today with regards to how we live out our lives. How now shall we live? And so today we'll continue and I want to speak specifically about eight judgments eight judgments. And it's so important to be aware of these judgments and to be clear about what we believe and why, what we believe and why. And I want to just highlight that there are various interpretations of scripture and viewpoints that people have with regards to eternal judgment and the important thing isn't for us to try to push our perspective Or to create doctrine out of something that the Bible doesn't really emphasize The point here is for you to be aware of the varying perspectives so that when you read a book you understand that oh, Okay, these guys have this stance. Oh, that's that camp over there All right, and so let me let me take it but maybe let me take it with a pinch of salt all right. And then oh, let me understand what those people over there believe it. Oh, I think I gravitate more easily to that. And I'm emphasizing this because so often people have a particular viewpoint and they think it's the only one and they preach about it like it's the same as salvation. And it's not so. I think that's important. And I'm going to actually start off with, I think, what's the most important judgment. Okay, So what are the different judgments mentioned in Scripture? The first one, I believe, is the most important one, which is the judgment of our sins at Calvary. The judgment of our sins at Calvary. And this is something a lot of Christians don't understand, that our sins were judged at Calvary. Jesus was judged on our behalf. Right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Isn't that powerful? He bore our sins. So God is not going to punish me for my sins because Jesus has already been punished does that make sense because he took my sins and went to the cross we need to understand this judgment it, it was a judgment and you know many people think like oh you know what god is just so gracious that's why he just lets sin go and so on he didn't let sin go he didn't let sin go sin had to be punished right because of god's righteousness and jesus took on that punishment for our on our behalf it's important to understand that in second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 the bible says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God isn't that powerful so when i now pray i pray in the name of Jesus right? I come before God not praying as a sinner, not praying as someone who has to twist God's arm in order for God to do something for me. No, I come and I pray in the name of Jesus. That's as if Jesus himself was praying. And that's the type of confidence we need to have because my sins were judged on the cross. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. In other words, when he was crucified, he became a curse for us, right? And so so when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are uncursable. Again, it's important to understand this because there are many people who go and they're afraid that this person bewitched me, this person put this thing on me. This person. No, you're uncursable because you're in Christ Jesus Right now, if you end up dabbling in those types of things like the witchcraft, like um, uh, things that are ungodly, it gives the enemy a legal right and legal access into your life, and that's when certain things can happen to you. Right, but if you're a believer and you're submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, guess what? You are uncursable. That's why elsewhere the Bible says a curse without a cause, cannot alight. What do we mean by alighting? Cannot land, right? Cannot land on you. So don't be afraid of the devil. In Romans 6 verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died for us, because the wages of sin, the thing you get as a result of sin is death right? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he took on all these things for us. He took on all these things for us. Isn't that awesome? But death could not hold him, right? He was sinless himself and he rose from the dead. Praise God that we have a way out. In John 5 verse 24, I love how it says, says it here. It says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. Isn't that awesome? And will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And this is how we bypass the white throne judgment. Okay. Uh, it's because of the atonement. It's because of justification. And let me mention this because these are two important words. Okay. This is atonement. What is atonement? It's reconciliation of God and man. That's what it is. Okay. It's to be set at one with. It's at one Right. So we've been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. And because of that, we don't face judgment Okay, the type of judgment we face is a different judgment, which I'll talk about just now. But it's important to understand that you've already been judged for your sins. All right. Um, And uh, let me talk about justification. To justify is to declare righteous. Okay. And God is the one who's the justifier. He justifies us. How does he justify us? It's just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification is, right? It's an act of God where he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of the sinner's faith in Christ Jesus. And that's why in that previous verse, it states that. And it says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, right? He's justified by God. It's just as if he'd never sinned. Isn't that so powerful, all right? So if my sins have already been judged, if there was judgment at Calvary, which is so awesome, right? Then what type of judgment do I face? Why should I be thinking about that judgment today? Whoa, well, what type of judgment do I face? The judgment of the saints. And this is sometimes also called the judgment seat. Of Christ and we touched on this last week in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 it says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us now he's talking to believers isn't he he's this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad so this is not judgment for condemnation, right, to hell, right, but a judgment for rewards. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through to 15, it says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work if what has been built survives the builder will receive a reward if it is burned up the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames that's the judgment seat of Christ It's basically saying, even if your work has failed or the quality wasn't that great, because you're in Christ Jesus, you will still be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So I don't know about you, but I don't want to just be saved. I also want to experience that time of receiving a reward because of the works. It's important to understand how God deals with his children, you know, it's interesting how in 1 Peter 4:16 it talks about judgment beginning in the house of God, you know, it talks about judgment starting in God's household, right? It's dated just after giving hope from the judgment at Calvary and can feel like, isn't this a bit confusing? You've just told me that I've escaped the judgment, alright? because of what Christ did for me and how he was judged at Calvary. Now you're talking about judgment beginning in the household of God. It's talking about different types of judgment, right? It's a fatherhood judgment as opposed to the judgment of criminals. For example, it's like how a judge in the court of law can sentence criminals, but still has to discipline his children at home. All right? It's two different types of judgment in 1st peter chapter 4 i'm going to read from verse 16b through to 18 it says however if you suffer as a christian do not be ashamed but praise god that you bear that name for it is time for judgment to begin with god's household and if it begins with us what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God so there's a form of judgment that has already begun with us it's a type of discipline that we go through where God takes us through certain processes because he's more interested in our character than our comfort and then ultimately there's the judgment of the saints where we are there and he's saying listen these were your motives when you did a b c d all right these are the words you spoke this is what you didn't speak and you are assessed based on that Verse 18 says, and if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? A wake-up call, right? In 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to read from verse 14 to 16a. So this is kind of like the previous section. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer It should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. What suffering are you going through? Make sure you're suffering because you bear Christ's name. It's a precious name to bear. And very often we like to downplay it because we don't want to suffer. See, we don't, we, God is calling us to suffer because of good things that we have done, because we are being persecuted, not to suffer because we are a criminal or we are meddling. And some Christians are suffering today, but it's because of their own folly and it's because of their own foolishness. But they think to themselves, I'm suffering for Jesus Okay? There's a difference between the two. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I think it will be important for us at some stage to do a study on the different types of rewards in Scripture. You know, and we see here there's the crown of righteousness, but there are other crowns. There are other types of crowns mentioned in scripture. Okay, there's what people get for being a martyr. There are different types of rewards. And I think this is interesting because Paul longed for this. Paul looked forward to this. And sometimes we've got this thing where we think rewards are bad or looking forward to a reward is terrible and it's ungodly. We must just serve the Lord. But one of the things that gives us hope is knowing that I'm doing this for the Lord. My heart is pure as as I'm doing it. And I know that he recognizes me one day. Man might not, but I know that he he will recognize me one day. The judgment of the saints is the judgment seat of Christ. And this is where we receive rewards. And this is something we can actually look forward to. In Revelation 22 verse 12, it says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. And you can see that the Lord is looking forward to that. You know, sometimes we think like, Ah, he just wants to judge the earth and it's all negative. He's like anticipating it. I'm longing to give you your reward. Now think of how man rewards. Can you imagine how God rewards? Can you imagine how you will feel when that happens? The third type of judgment I want to talk about today is the judgment of Israel, the judgment of Israel. Throughout scripture, we see God releasing judgment and mercy on Israel. They were judged when they turned away from him and began to worship other gods. Right? And they experienced God's blessing and God's favor and God's goodness when they would obey him. And we see this pattern throughout scripture. God allowed, for example, the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer Israel and take its people into exile. And we know those those accounts. We see this in the books of um, Kings and Chronicles, as well as in the prophetic books of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I mean, even look at Malachi 4, 1 to 3. It says, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And by the way, it's interesting in Scripture how very often there was judgment that was linked to arrogance, a wickedness linked to pride, arrogance, and turning away from God and turning to self. And that day, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. So with regards to, uh, to Israel, we see that throughout the children of Israel were experiencing judgment. But with regards to God's judgment of Israel in the last days, there are a few major contrasting views. And I want to share with you these views again, so that if you hear of one of the views, you don't think that's the only view. And that's the only thing the Bible says. And then you go and preach at another church and you talk about it with such conviction, yet they hold the other view. So there's the preterist view, right? And uh, in this particular view, most of The prophecies with regards to Israel and her judgments have already been fulfilled in the first century. All right. And in particular, what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. So, a number of people believe, quite a lot of people believe, that that. Was the judgment that it was speaking of okay remember AD 70 the culmination of uh, the siege of Jerusalem right remember the people in Judea they were they were revolting and rebelling against the Roman Empire and then they were sieged and of course uh, the temple was the, the second temple it was uh, destroyed in AD 70 and they fled the persecution of the Jewish people, they fled all over and some of the things that were done to them were horrific, horrific. And a number of those things, when you look at what actually happened and you look at what's described in some of the prophecies concerning the destruction and the judgment over Israel, you can see why people see it as, Oh, I'm sure it is what happened in AD 70. And I'm sure there are people out there who probably see a double application of the old Testament prophecies, right? Uh, And even of what Jesus said, because Jesus also prophesied these things and they'll say, you know what? I think maybe it was speaking of A.D. 70, but it might have also been speaking of a time in the last days. Okay, so that's the preterist view of um, the judgment of Israel. Then there's the dispensationalist view. And this view sees Israel as a distinct entity in God's plan, separate from the church. And according to this view, God will judge Israel in the last days as part of his plan to fulfill biblical prophecies regarding the restoration of Israel as a nation. Okay, and you'll see that many Zionist people, people who are very much for the nation of Israel, um, have this have this uh, viewpoint, right? And the judgment will involve, in this particular viewpoint, the judgment will involve a time of tribulation and suffering, followed by the return of Christ to establish his kingdom on earth. And so this view is characterized by the belief that Israelites will return to Israel from where they've been spread out across the world. Now just remember with all these views, there are various uh, there, there are a lot of varieties and variations of these viewpoints within them. So, though I'm saying, speaking in general, saying the dispensationalist view, within that, there might be slightly different views, all right? So, there's some who might believe that during the time of the tribulation, it's a literal tribula- tribulation, um, the Israelites are going to have the gospel preached to them and they will all get saved and become Christians, right? Messianic Jews during that time, and then um, experience um, Jesus's reign and reign with him. All right, so these are some of these views. Then there's the covenantal view, and this view sees Israel and the church as part of the same covenantal relationship with God. And in this view, God's judgment of Israel will be a part of his overall judgment of humanity in the last days. So they're lumped together in terms of that. Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah will be seen as a sin just like any other and will be judged accordingly. All right. So that's the covenantal view. Then there's the replacement theology view. The replacement theology view. And this view holds that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. Can you see how this is different right, from the dispensationalist view? Right? It's a view that, wait a minute, wherever we see uh, it mentioned Israel, we can take that and it's now the church. Right? And there isn't some distinct Israel out there. Right? That's replacement theology. Right? And uh, basically, with this particular viewpoint, there's no special role for Israel in the end times. Right. there's, There's nothing much special about Israel and the judgment of Israel is seen as a historical event rather than a future event. Right. And there's no expectation of a future restoration of Israel as a nation. So those are four major viewpoints in terms of of this. And sometimes when you look at how people interpret scripture, you can understand that, oh, this is why these people have, have, have taken on this viewpoint. This is why these ones have taken on this viewpoint. And it shouldn't cause us to be divided, all right? But these are perspectives concerning the judgment of Israel. And it's worth noting that there's a great deal of diversity and complexity within each of these views, like I've been saying. So um, sometimes we like to box people, but you see that some people are actually a combo of some of these perspectives, right? Um, The fourth judgment I wanna talk about is the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the nations. In the book of Psalms 110 verse six, it says, he will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And throughout scripture, we see how God would judge nations. God would judge nations. And um, some of you might have read my book, Building Your Nation. I'd encourage you to get a hold of it because that's where I talk about nations and how nations seem to have a life of their own. You know, they have a redemptive purpose. There are things that nations can do that result in the nation being blessed, and there are things that they do that um, result in the nation being cursed. And it's so important for us to have a theology of nations. And as that grows, very often we become more effective when it comes to praying for our nation and praying for the nations of the world. Right. So here's some examples in scripture of how God judges nations. For example, think of Egypt. Egypt experienced judgment from God for enslaving the Israelites and refusing to let them go. What did God do? He sent 10 plagues upon Egypt, culminating in the death of all the firstborn in the land, right? And we see this in Exodus chapters uh, 7 through to 12. So there was that judgment. Babylon, for example, Babylon was judged by God for its arrogance and pride, as well as for how it treated the Israelites. Isn't it amazing how God can use a nation to basically uh, discipline another nation? And then that very nation that was disciplining the other nation ends up getting God's judgment because of its pride and its arrogance. Isn't it amazing? Uh, God God used the Medes and the Persians to conquer Babylon. And this was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. We see this in Isaiah 13 uh, verses 17 through to 22. And it's also fulfilled in the book of Daniel. And we see this in Daniel 5 verses 30 through to 31. Okay. Think of Assyria. The nation of Assyria was judged by God for its cruelty and its violence towards other nations. God used the Babylonians to conquer Assyria and destroy its capital city of Nineveh. And this is prophesied in the book of Nahum. So we see that the direction which a nation takes is often determined by the choices its people make. Have you noticed that? if you look at the verses I'm going to share with you, it highlights this. In Proverbs 14 verse 34, it says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. So true. Righteousness exalts a nation. Do we want our nation to be exalted? Let's walk in righteousness, but sin condemns any people. And, you know, as you read this, And as you read the scriptures with me, just remember that the word woe is a word of judgment. So in Isaiah 10 verses 1 to 3, it says, Woe to those who make unjust laws. Woe is a word of judgment. It's a word of destruction, right? Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. How many nations have done this in history to deprive the poor of their rights, and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey, and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches?" So we're talking here about people who've exploited the marginalized in order to become wealthy. We're talking about some of these lawmakers that have made unjust laws, that have been oppressive to people, to the poor, to deprive the poor of their rights. There are nations in the world who are doing this right now, not looking after their people, but abusing them, taking advantage of them, milking the system, whatever term we use, there's judgment for those particular nations. And that word woe is a very, very strong word. The fifth judgment I want to talk about is the judgment of cities, the judgment of cities. We've taught quite a bit in the past on cities, and I've shared with you that you can, um, there's there's cities that are for God and there's cities that are anti-God, aren't they? And um, as a church, we need to be for the city. Right. We're not with the city in the sense of we're doing everything our city is doing, but we're for the city. We are salt we're salt and light in the city and we want to change things in the city so that the city is blessed. In Luke chapter 10, verse 10 through to 13, it says, but when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this. The kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So we see that cities can respond to the gospel. Yes, there are individuals that make up cities, but sometimes you find that it could be a mixture of the lawmakers, the spirit and the culture of that city that says, we don't want churches. We don't believe in this. We don't want this in our city, right? And there's something you can say to that city. And you see here that Jesus actually said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Those cities are in ruins today. They experienced that particular judgment. So I'm trying to emphasize that there's judgment that will happen, right, on the day of judgment. But there's also judgment that's already been happening. It's important that we understand these principles, you know. Jesus Christ, yes, ultimately ruling, reigning over the earth but there's also his current rule. He currently rules through his church, for example, right? He rules through his word, he rules by his spirit. So we need to understand these principles that there's the culmination of what will happen in the end, right? Telios, how will things end, right? In the Greek it's telios, but there's also what's already taking place. Cities have specific characteristics and specific states that they find themselves in. And they'll be judged based on this. In Matthew 10, verse 14 to 15, it says, Confuse the wicked, O Lord, confound their speech, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. Okay, that's a characteristic of a particular city. Father, may you help us to take ownership of our cities. May you help us to take ownership of our towns. May it never be said that threats and lies never leave our city's streets. May it never be said that day and night uh, they prowl about on its walls with violence and with strife and with malice and with abuse may that not be spoken of in this city we pray in Jesus name in Amos chapter 3 verse 6 it says when a trumpet sounds in a city do not the people tremble when disaster comes to a city has not the Lord caused it so there's disaster that can be caused by the Lord And some people say that's the divine passive tense and that in actual fact, it's just the consequences of sin. Yes, because it's not God's heart to destroy, but it's God's nature to be holy. He is holy, he is perfect. He will not entertain lack of purity. He will not entertain uh, malice, abuse. He will not entertain lies, threats, violence, Father, may you forgive us for these things that we have done. We stand in the gap right now on behalf of our cities. We stand in the gap and we cry out for your mercy. You know, Jesus said the woes to cities, and some of them don't exist anymore. Some of them are in ruins today. And he's the one who woed them, right? Genesis chapter 19 verse 24 Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. That's what he did. And when you read the build up to it, you can see the types of sin that were in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the result was judgment. I believe that some cities are in the process of being judged even in history and even right now as I speak. But I believe that there will be the ultimate judgment of cities. Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 49 to 50. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. This is big in God's mind in terms of what cities should do. Are we helping the poor and needy as a city? They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And it's so important to understand that cities have personas. Cities can have a culture of generosity. You know, A lot of the judgment a city experiences is also here and now. It's important to understand that. For example, is your city age-friendly? Does it cater for those who are aging? How is it designed? When the people are doing the town planning, are they taking into consideration old people in the city? Are there laws being made for those people when it comes to where they can sit, when it comes to the queuing system? It's important that we teach people in local government how to have a biblical view of cities and how to do things and make decisions and make policies that result in a city being blessed. You see, if you have a multi-generational vision concerning a city, it's in your interest to look after the city, to make laws and policies in the city that cause God to bless the city so that our children in the city grow up blessed. The sixth Judgment I want to mention is the judgment of the wicked. And this is one really d- dealt with last week in Revelations 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to. What they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Make sure your name remains in the book of of life and this is what's called the white throne judgment white throne judgment and i mean we can unpack this further you know uh, some people emphasize that it happens on the earth right when you look at it it's not like just god is up in the sky on a throne there etc right some people see it as literally what's described there that's exactly what it will look like remember uh, this is a vision someone is having right? And so visions can have a symbolic element to them. How exactly it will happen, how exactly it will look like, I can't say to you, you know? And sometimes we like to speculate and we start saying things that are beyond scripture, extra biblical things, okay? Um, The seventh judgment is the judgment of angels. In Jude 6, it says, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These He has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day, right? Now, this could be speaking of the initial rebellion of a third of the angels from heaven, along with Lucifer, right? It could be speaking of them. It uh, could also be referring to the angels or sons of God that are described in Genesis 6 verse 4. Some of you are familiar with it. They left their abode and they had relations with the daughters of men and they produced the neph- neph- Nephilim, Nephilim, right? Um, that's translated the fallen ones, Nephilim, the giants, okay? Men of renown, etc. But there was such wickedness during that time and it led up to God basically saying, I regret having created the world created man in particular right let me start over and he sends the flood right other uh, others actually believe that the readers of jude were actually exposed to extra biblical books that didn't make it into the canon of scripture like the book of enoch for example which has many references to god judging the angels but regardless it shows us that there's something special about us as human beings right and that those of us uh, who are born again at some point might play a role in judging angels. It also shows us that trespassing in the spirit has serious consequences, that these angels that trespassed in the spirit, right, there's serious consequences to that. So we must stick to our lanes and what God has called us to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life, You know, it's interesting, like, you sometimes wonder, like, where did Paul get this from? Where did he learn about this? Who taught him that, hey, dude, you know, we're gonna judge the angels. Right. So it's not clear whether these are fallen angels or demons who will face Christ's judgments in the end. You know, um, if you look at second Peter, chapter two, verse four or Jude six. OK, it's really Jude one, verse six. But, you know, Jude has only got one chapter. Right. Or is it talking about the unfallen angels who still serve God? Are we going to judge them? Mm-hmm right? The point is that those who are in Christ will share his authority and actually participate in some form of his judgment and this should actually impact how we judge small matters today. And that's actually our destiny. And so what he's basically saying is, listen guys, you should be able to deal with those small matters in-house. You don't have to be taking each other to court and having unsaved people actually judge you because Do you know that you're going to judge the angels at some point? You're going to participate in Christ's judgment. Isn't that awesome? We are sons. We are heirs. And we are part of this judgment process where we will also be doing some judging. Judging of angels. Wow. It just shows you how God sees us. And then finally, the eighth judgment is the judgment of Satan. Satan is consigned to eternal punishment in the lake of burning sulfur. And it's so important that we understand this because the way some Christians are afraid of the devil and you're wondering why are you afraid of the devil, right? Why are you afraid of the devil? He's afraid of you when you know your authority. In the book of Revelation 20, verses seven through to 10, it says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Next week, no, in a couple of weeks time, I will talk about eschatology, right? The, uh, the end times, what will happen in the end and the different perspectives and the different viewpoints, right? So here when it talks about the thousand years, it's obviously talking about the millennium, right? Uh, thousand year reign, Right. Some people believe it's a literal thousand years. Some people believe we're already in it. It's the church age. They're different viewpoints. And I'll share with you those major viewpoints just so that we understand those perspectives. Okay, Uh, Gog and Magog and to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and Surrounded the camp of God's people the city he loves but fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who Deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown They will be tormented day and night Forever and ever and that's the destination of your enemy praise God so <clears throat> next week I'm going to speak on the subject of heaven and hell according to the Bible and what it says. I'm also going to show you what different cults, sects, religions believe in terms of the afterlife so that when you hear people talking, you can say that's from that camp, that's from that camp, but it's clearly distinguished and differentiated from the word of God. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. God bless you. Father, we ask that you come and you do what only you can do. We open our hearts to you and we say, have your way in our hearts, have your way in our lives and keep teaching us, Lord, concerning eternal judgment. We choose to live for you and we choose to honor you in all we do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. God bless you.